Welcome to our online reading session number three. My name is Caterina Valdivia Bruch and I'm the artistic director of the project Rethinking Conceptualism, avant-garde activism and politics in Latin American art from the 1960s till 1980s. As some of you might know, we postponed the project for next year. And in the meantime, we have started to organize a series of online reading sessions and workshops. And we welcome everybody to attend these online meetings. In this online reading session, we had as a special guest Uruguayan artist Luis Kamnitzer. We discussed with him Mari Carmen Ramirez's texts, Blueprint Circuits, Conceptual Art and Politics in Latin America, and Tactics for Thriving on Adversity, Conceptualism in Latin America, and also reflected on his view on Latin American conceptualism, the role of the museums, and the importance of art and education. We leave you with some of the reflections by Luis Kamnitzer. Enjoy listening to this inspiring conversation. In this first part, Luis Kamnitzer compares his own theory on Latin American conceptualism with the one by Mari Carmen Ramirez. I reread Mari Carmen's piece. And I mean, we all were at the time and still trying to place ourselves. Where are we really? And I think today she would write differently and I would write differently a lot of stuff I wrote then. I think our conception of art in, I mean, it's very difficult to generalize because in each part there are different people. So in the U.S. there were artists like Hans Hacker or Marta Rosler or Alan Sekula who were not stylistically oriented but were socially oriented. So they were much closer to a lot of stuff we were doing as Latin Americans. And on the other hand, there were a lot of Latin Americans that were trying to get into the international market and were actually using that as a reference. So it's very difficult to generalize and there's a temptation for art historians to make little cubicles because it's easier to tell a history if you have it organized that way. But in general, I would say that most of the interesting art in Latin America was not a response to hegemonic art. It was not uh, an echo and a shift, which was our temptation at the time. But we were dealing with the local reality, even if we were not in that reality, like was my case. But I still, today, I'm still living in Uruguay and not in the United States. So. It's a mental thing, it's not a physical geography thing. And the, the idea, I think art in hegemony is much more isolated as a discipline and therefore has different rules. While art on the periphery, and I'm going beyond Latin America, tends to be a cultural, uh, more integral manifestation. And that's why I insist in Latin America not to look at art as a visual plastic series of objects, 
but to see it in connection with other things that were parallel and that were coming from the same root. And therefore, poetry, pedagogy, theology of liberation were all different flowers from the same plant. And we only understand those flowers if we go to see what the plant is from where it came or the rhizomatic mushroom structure that produced all those things. But they are just different symptoms of a common package that is cultural and that is influenced by economy, by colonization, but by understanding its own reality. And that's why I use Simon Rodriguez, who was a pedagogue of early 19th century, as the origin of our approach to information. That is, when he laid out a page, he was not just telling a story, he was concerned with having the reader understand the story the exact same way he was emitting it. So he was basically a forerunner of uh, information theory <laughs> and putting, dealing with erosion of information, with redundancy, with how do you make sure that the information travels with a minimum of loss into the mind of the reader. And that, I think, was, even if we were not totally articulate about it, our main concern. So it's there where conceptual art ends up being a rather mystical movement that tries to identify the spiritual essence of art and by dematerializing, coming closer and closer. And that's why I use the onion as a metaphor, because you keep peeling away the material part, and eventually you end up with nothing. So contextual art, on the contrary, the way we named it in the early 60s, or conceptualism, which I picked up later from uh, Peter Wallen's difference between Kossuth and Solnewit, was interesting because it pointed out to conceptualism being a strategy of behavior or of imagination, while conceptual was a way of coming with a new form that was dematerialized, but ultimately created a style. The style still recognizing by gridded paper, by a lot of formal devices that took the place of material, but still are material. And in conceptualism, we really didn't care if it took place in a painting or in a rally on the street. The point was, where was it leading to? It was leading to transformation. So the strategies were about how to transform society in the direction we wanted it to go. And that's why Tucumanarde, even if it's not something really that relevant in terms of traditional art was important because it applied artistic thinking to a political situation and dismissed the instrumental part of art just to use art as a way of knowledge and see how does that knowledge, can be that knowledge affected with imagination. And then that becomes a different challenge. So 
traditional artists would say, well, there's not much imagination there, which is possibly true. But there was a break, there was a crossing uh, frontier, which was very important. And as important, as I point out in the book, is when the Tupamaros crossed over from pure politics and military structure into a more imaginative realm that was closer to art, even if they never articulated it that way. So, if you ask me about the massacre of Portomont, which is actually irrelevant in all of this, I would say that at the time I wanted to create a context, uh, not an illustration, but a translation of a real event into a gallery room and have people walk uh, a blueprint, an architectural blueprint of a massacre and then reconstruct the actual feeling of the massacre as much as possible. It was a total dud. It was a total failure because on the left, I was criticized that I didn't have blood in the installation and therefore it wasn't political art. And on the right, I was criticized that it was too political and narrative and didn't deal with art in traditional ways. So in 69, that show was a total disaster. And then 40 years later, it was restaged with a little bit more of success. But that's unimportant. I think that is biography information, not really part of intellectual history and how a collective culture evolved or did not evolve or how it tried to evolve and then was oppressed again and not necessarily in military form, although in many cases, yes, but also in cultural form. I mean, there's an imbalance of how information travels. We are not equipped to counter information in our informational world. And we still are trying to find ways of dealing with our own set of data and, uh, and society building, which is what matters. I think one of the mistakes of Marie Carmen is that she still saw art as one global action instead of allowing locality to define its own dialect, separate from this Esperanto view of art, which we still suffer. And in this segment, Luis Kamnitzer speaks about the importance of art in education. Well, I increasingly think that everything is about education and not about art. And that art is just, well, first of all, I don't see much difference anymore. And, uh, I think we have to generate or help generate knowledge in whatever we do. So the divisions are irrelevant. And education in a traditional way is really training and make you efficient in the labor market, but it's not pushing you to imagine and to to conquer or or explore, let's say, ignorance. It's really about confirming what we already know instead of looking for what we don't know. And in that search, art is a crucial instrument and the fact that art is not integrated into the whole curriculum 
of education is already a sign how corrupt education is and how the word education actually shouldn't be used for what is happening institutionally. Uh, that's on one side. On the other one, for a long time, I didn't even realize that Paulo Freire is my generation. And, and the people developing uh, theology of liberation and challenging the structure of the church were my generation. And we were all really embarked in the same confrontation using different instruments to do that. And if we would recognize that, that it's a generational issue, not an issue of individualities that sort of pop up in different disciplines, we would understand the problem much better and be equipped much better to work today. And so I think it's important to minimize heroism and analyze the dynamics of culture in a broader term and see, well, where do we want it to go and help collectively to make it go in that sense. The fact that I am involved in art is pure accident. I mean, it is actually an accident. And if I would narrate my life, you would see it just happened. It wasn't my anxiety or the call of God or anything like that. It was pure coincidence of things and based on manuality, not on any awareness or any need. I didn't need to do it. I just enjoyed it. But you cannot make history on the basis of individual enjoyments. I mean, you can, and it's done, but you know where it leads to. If you just look at people leading countries, you see the problems of enjoyment in determining what people do. So it's not uh, consciousness that goes there. So today, I mean, I'm over 80, and I feel my energy is better applied to trying to change educational systems than to make objects for a collection. So I still do objects, but I'm cynical about it. And my effort is really on how can I help change pedagogy, which I think is our main urgent mission today. This part is dedicated to the role of the museums and education. I mean, the historical origin of the museum is to show off what has been actually stolen from other cultures. And the main thing was how powerful we are that we could steal those things. And the second one is, was the educational part of what was shown. And then slowly the museum evolved to be the setter of the canon and therefore start educating the public to accept that canon. And that's really where the betrayal of the institution started, because if it really would want to educate, it would help the public to construct a canon rather than to accept a canon that was established by a power structure. So I'm fascinated by the virus. I think the virus is a fantastic pedagogical tool that forces us to reconsider our function and our relations. 
And this is the moment in which a museum could say, okay, we are an educational institution. We were miseducating people. Let's revise this. What are we supposed to do? Our collection and collecting is, for the moment at least, a totally obsolete activity. There's no point in accumulating stuff that nobody can see. And if we put it online, people won't see it. They will see an echo of the object. So let's stop that crap and let's invest the enormous amount of money we were investing on insurance and acquisitions and enlarging our buildings to really educate people. And under the circumstances, what can we do to educate? And then the museum will start functioning as it should. Okay, and it's more like an interactive library that goes into the homes with educational processes, not in saying, oh, if we could open our doors, you would see this Van Gogh. And here is the surface appearance of that Van Gogh, which unfortunately you won't see, but we own it. And we own it and not that other museum that claims that it's more important than we are. They are not. So it's that game that today clearly doesn't make sense anymore. Now, other institutions are not in that category and have different parameters. But ultimately, I think everybody's function is to help other people to not to consume, but to create. In this part, Luis Kamitsa speaks about art, mystery, the difference between art and religion, and the power of art as a tool for social transformation. It's an old thing. It's about should art be autonomous or not. And uh, the whole movement of social practice is against autonomy and is applied art. I, I don't have problems either way, actually. I think art is also an area of research like theoretical sciences. So it's not necessarily important for application. But I certainly think that no matter what, autonomous or not, and that's where I have a little bit of problem actually with art as practical, as a social practice. Art as social practice as made by most is really an enhanced social service which means it's a social service how it should be, but it's still social service. And if it were real art, it would be opening doors to things we don't know. And that's where art as social practice has a difficult task. I think mystery is an important factor. We are confronted with mystery permanently. And one of our tasks is to unveil it so that we can go to the next mystery. One problem with religion is that it presents you with mysteries that are not to be revealed, they are to stay as mysteries. So you become a consumer of mysteries and that makes the construction of religion. And in art, you actually dig through the mystery to find what's the next mystery to be dug in. So it's a Sisyphus process. You never end, and it's addictive. And that's why I think 
I continue to do art, but it's demystifying mysteries, not to destroy them, but to explore our ignorance. And that's where art is the answer to religion and not an extension to religion. And that's why often art is seen as a blasphemy, blasphemous activity, and not as a religious one. So the issue of autonomy is a relative one. You can talk about autonomous art and see it as servicing a different kind of politics. It's like apolitical art is still political art. It depends who is being served by it. And if you put it in those terms, I know exactly who I want to serve. And there are different ways of doing art to serve the interests I am interested in. So some is more declarative, some is less declarative, some is overt, some is self-enclosed, some is open. It doesn't matter. As long the interests it serves are the ones I consider being correct. In this last section, Luis Kamnitzer explains how he started using language and what is language for him in terms of art. When I entered language in January 1966, I mean, I remember the precise moment. It was because I realized it's cheaper than making things, number one. It's less labor intensive than making things, number two. And I enter the mind and the imagination of the reader in ways that my image wouldn't allow. If I make an image, I'm condemning the viewer to stay in my image. If I give them a description of a visual image, then I'm forcing that image to be reconstructed in the mind of the reader. And that's still visual arts for me. It's just shifting the material on which I formalize the vision. And from an educational point of view, that is more effective and more important. So it's not about consuming the images I make, but about starting a process in the mind of the viewer. So I didn't put it that way, but that was a moment in which art and education became one and impossible to separate. So when people describe me like Katerina, that I'm an artist, a curator, an educator, and whatever other adjectives she attached to me. She missed the point. I'm only an artist, nothing else. I just travel among media. And if I have a problem to be solved that needs curatorship, I do it in curatorship. But it's still an art project. If I needed to do it in a classroom, I use a classroom but it's still an art project. That is, no matter what medium I use, I'm trying to open a process of generation of knowledge and not transmit knowledge. 